But yeah, we pray that God would show his power, that God would be uh, working in our lives and, and intersecting with our lives in a way that on our own strength, understanding power, that it just couldn't happen. That's why we meet. That we would have a, a power beyond what we ourselves possess. That we'd be connected to the source of all power, the God, uh, the creator uh, of all, that is. As Brian mentioned, I'm speaking on the Trinity this morning. Um, big subject. But if you're baffled a little bit by the, by the Trinity, you have, you have good company. Uh, St. Augustine, the early church philosopher, theologian, deep thinker, beautiful writer, one of my favorites. He uh, spent 15 years working on a uh, work on the Trinity called uh, Appropriately on the Trinity. And he spent 15 years working on this. And not too long after, he was from North Africa. He was walking along the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he sees this little boy who had dug a hole in the beach. And he noticed this little boy was using a bucket. And he was taking water from the Mediterranean, bringing it over to the hole and filling up the hole. So uh, Augustine goes up to him and says, uh, Dear boy, what are you doing? And, and the child goes, Well, I, I'm trying to fill my hole up with the entire Mediterranean Sea. I'm trying to fill my hole with the Mediterranean. And Augustine, because I guess the good theologians chastise children who are, you know, thinking such grandiose thoughts, says, well, that's, that's impossible. What are you trying to do? Your hole is uh, far too small in the sea is far too vast. And he continues on, <laughs> doing his good deed for the day or whatever. But it strikes him, it hits him. The Lord speaks to him. And, and he hears, hears this. All you're thinking on the Trinity is like this little boy's attempt to fill up his hole with the Mediterranean Sea. Our capacity is far too small for the vast uh, being that God is. So, uh, rest assured you have good company. We're, we're, we're talking about something that's a revealed mystery. And it's a mystery not because of scarcity, but because of abundance. The mystery that uh, is more like trying to figure out something as vast as the ocean with just a little bit of a glimpse. So this morning we're going to uh, investigate this revealed mystery of God as Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God, who is one, is also three. His threeness does not diminish his oneness. His oneness does not diminish his threeness. There's not three gods, nor is God a lonely monad. It took the church a little while to figure this out from the building blocks that were in Scripture. Uh, but God has always been this way. There was never a time God was not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and forever shall be. It's who God is. But for us, as we think about this, it's not just an academic thing to, to kind of figure out with our heads, uh, but if we're indeed made in the image of God, what difference does it make in our lives that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, it's my belief, that, you know, and we'll talk about this this morning, that a Trinitarian understanding of God deeply transforms our understanding of what it means to be human, our understanding of what it means to be in community together, and what it means actually to participate in God's mission here and now, where we're at. So again, it's not just academic. The reality of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
changes, changes how we live in our bodies, and it changes how we live together as the body of Christ. So I'll read some scripture. This morning, the, the sermon's going to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, theological in that it's, I'm going to kind of be all over the New Testament a little bit, but I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28 uh, to start us off. And uh, we'll read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, page 989 if you're following along in the, in the Pew Bible. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth had, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, or all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, you are amazing beyond our comprehension. Yet you've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. You've revealed yourself as one born in a manger. One who uh, suffered death upon a cross. And one who has entrusted us with the enormous task of making disciples of all people. We want to learn from you this morning, so I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So God has revealed as three persons sharing one divine nature. I want to start off this morning by giving you a little bit of a grammar, a little bit of language to sort of start to grasp the Trinity Trinity a little bit. I want to start talking about heresy a little bit. Heretics can actually be our really good teachers because they show us, actually, they bring into focus what God is not. And when it comes to understanding God as three persons, uh, there's a heresy called modalism that helps bring into clear focus uh, some ways in which we're prone to to wander from the reality of God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Modalism was an early church heresy to believe that God uh, was one, but just revealed in different modes. Do we have any comic book, book fans in here? I know, don't be ashamed. Raise your hands. There's a character in the X-Men series called Mystique, and I don't know if you've ever seen these movies or read, read the books, but she changes form and shape depending on kind of what she needs to be for that circumstance. That's what modalism in some sense is that God is God, but sometimes God needs to be Jesus. So God kind of changes shape and form into Jesus. Sometimes God needs to be Holy Spirit, so God changes form into into Holy Spirit. So God has different modes or different aspects. The problem with modalism is that it's, one, obviously not scriptural, but two, it, it takes away from the truth of God being revealed in three persons. That 
that God is revealed as always Father, always Son, always Holy, Holy Spirit. Um, so in contrast to modalism, in Scripture we see three persons. There's different ways in which we can uh, bring into focus these three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The first way is the way in which Scripture reveals uh, God through action. We know the Father, the Father as creator, the one who formed the heavens and the earth. We know Jesus uh, as distinctly the Redeemer. Uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus shows us that Jesus uh, is, is God's son with unique work to do. And finally, we see the work of the Holy Spirit as sanctifier or sustainer. The Holy Spirit distinctly uh, is the one who unites us with Christ and each other and sanctifies us and allows us to grow in holiness. So three persons revealed in different action. Creator, redeemer, sanctifier. That's one way we sort of have a grammar for the different persons of the Trinity. At the same time, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, it's uh, important to realize that though these are the principal actors in each of these scenarios, the other persons of the Trinity are involved in each of these actions. So, for example, when we talk about creation as the Father uh, being the, the Father of creation, we can also look to John 1.3 and read that all things, speaking of Jesus, the Word, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So the Son is also involved with the Father in creation. And also, if, if we look at Psalm 33.6, some uh, folks have pointed to this as evidence of the Spirit's work in creation as well. Uh, Psalm 33.6 reads, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Breath and spirit are the same word in, in Hebrew. So, uh, so uh, all three persons are involved in creation, but we might say that the father was the principal actor uh, in, in creation, the son the principal actor in redemption, and the Holy Spirit the principal actor in our sanctifications. So that's one way of having a grammar for the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, another way to... to sort of develop a grammar for, for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is actually by uh, thinking about their source, the source of each. This is, this is a little bit technical, but it, it'll, it'll be relevant here. Follow me. So we learn that the Son is uh, begotten. That's the source of the Son's identity. He is begotten. Not made, not created, but begotten. And you guys know where we can find this, right? You, you, you may know. If you look in John chapter 1, we can read, I'm reading the King James Version because I think it gets at it pretty good. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. So the Son is begotten. That's one way of distinguishing the Son. And we learn that the Spirit is not begotten, but the Spirit, what, what's the source of the Spirit? Well, in John 15, 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's the way of talking about the Spirit's source. Now, the Father has no source. Uh, the Father is... Uh, Unoriginate, they say. So that's one grammar. Uh, 
uh, son is begotten, spirit is, uh, proceeds from the father, and, and the father is unoriginate, no source. Now, it's really important as I say this, uh, be, though they have source, that does not mean they were uh, started at some point in time. The son is eternally begotten. The spirit eternally proceeds. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's mysterious. This, this is a deep mystery, and I ask you just to go with me. This is very relevant to our life, actually, how we live now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always that way. Unity together. Not made. And I, I thought it was funny. One theologian was like, the, the Son and Spirit are different because the Son is begotten while the Spirit proceeds. Then he goes on to say, don't ask me how those are different. We just know that they're different. Uh, the last way, probably one of the last most common ways people distinguish Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct persons is through look, looking at how they uh, mediate the divine human relationship. So looking at the narrative of the New Testament, we say that God's saving action is from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are playing a part, unique parts, but cooperating together and bringing us into restored relationship with God. Now, as I go on uh, this morning, it's helpful to have these distinctions as, distinctions as we talk about what it means for us to be made in the image of God and what it means that God, again, is three persons, one nature. So what does this mean for us, in particular, God's threeness? Well, it means this. God's three-in-one particularity shows us that we can embrace our own uniqueness and our own particularity. But this is the key. We can embrace that, our uniqueness, in a way that doesn't have to be individualistic. God shows us how to be individuals in the context of community. In other words, this myth in modern culture of the isolated, autonomous, free individual just doesn't hold up weight when you compare it to Scripture. Relatedness is the nature of our human identity. Uh, last week was Father's Day. It's uh, fathers are fathers because they have children pretty basic statement. Now that, uh, that, you can't take that away from a father ever. A father will always be a father. It doesn't matter what happens. A father will always be a father. And it's an identity that is distinct and individual, yet it's only known in the context of the father's relationship to having a child. Same thing about everyone here is, is the son, da- son or daughter of, of a father and mother. That never changes. Your uniqueness is only known in the context of your relatedness. This is what God shows us. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. So uh, another way of expressing this, sort of pretty basic but but deep truth. Uh, When my family, when we say grace before a meal, we we were doing this just the other week, and we hold hands, kind of like we're doing here in church. We hold hands. And we sing a song, The Lord is Good to Me. And the kids love it. They just, they, if we don't, you know, sing the song before a meal, they just, 
They just insist on it. And just the other the night we were singing together and, and holding each other's hands and singing, my kids have smiles on their faces, and we're singing as one voice. In the communion we have there at the table as we sing together, it's, uh, we're together, but I, I feel more myself than any other place in the world. I know myself as a unique individual, as a father, as a member of my family, where, where I, I just, I can't comprehend myself. I don't understand myself out of that context. It's this joyous celebration of, of life together, and, and we're one, but we're distinct. I rejoice in Evelyn and Jill and, and John, yet together we're one. There's this dynamic uh, just interplay between my unique identity and how that's shared and known in the context of others. So the first lesson, first takeaway this morning is that God affirms your uniqueness, your particularity, if you will. It's not accidental. Who you are reflects the image of God. There might be a temptation to, de- uh, to deny your uniqueness, to be something you're not, to be whatever is popular on TV or social media. I don't know. The irony, right, is that in our supposed individual, individualism here in, in the United States, we're all, especially the young people, are just trying to be the same. Um, but you are loved by God in all of your particularity. The real you, not the carefully manicured, presented one. Um, but God loves you, not in spite of your personality, but in your uniqueness. So the first question is, have you embraced your particularity? So ethnicity, age, body type, your place in birth order, your marital status, those things that are just kind of given of you. Have you embraced that this is how God made you? And don't get me wrong, this isn't just like a watered-down self-acceptance thing. Uh, just, you know, just to kind of like yourself more. Um, we're, we're called to, to crucify our sinful flesh. Jesus calls us to lose our life that we may find it in him. But this doesn't mean you lose your particularity, your uniqueness. Rather, it means that it can be redeemed through Jesus Christ. So you can be the you God, had, God truly created you to be. And I think this is one reason why Paul's adamant that, that non-Jews, uh, that they don't submit to circumcision. You find who you are in Christ, not in submitting to a, 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 a different cultural marker of, of belonging. This is also why in Revelation you see uh, people of many tribes and tongues coming together. It's not like those things are eradicated. We bring those to the throne together. In all our contextual particularity, we bring our praise before God. We reflect the triune God together in that way. So this is very different spirituality, very different theology than you see in other world religions, if you think about it. For example, in Islam, um, you can't read the Quran in any other language than Arabic. It's prescribed that you read it. If you're reading it truly, you have to read it in Arabic. Uh, you also have to submit to a ton of different cultural markers of belonging. Um, so there's a sort of imposition of culture uh, upon others. Um, but in Christianity, uh, the hope is not to eradicate pre-existing cultures but to redeem them through Christ. Um, 
this actually has an effect on how we expressed our uniqueness as a body, as Foothill Covenant Church. Um, who are we called to be in the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we reflect Christ in the unique way that we're supposed to reflect Christ together? There's only one Foothill Covenant Church. Well, there might be another one named that way somewhere else, but there's only, you know, we are unique. God has called us together in a unique way. So how are we living into, pressing into our particularity as a people? How are we pressing into our good weirdness, as I uh, spoke about a few weeks ago? Uh, Globalization is a danger, right? We we try to be like everybody else. Um, And you see this in different churches. There's kind of a McChurch model out there, right? You kind of see churches that all sort of look the same, all sing kind of the same songs and kind of speak the same language. Um, I think that that's sort of, it's a wrong way of thinking about um, uh, the way God has equipped us to be uniquely us in the world. That's part of his mission is that he would use us in a way that, you know, we fulfill God's mission in only a way that we can fulfill God's mission because we are only uh, uniquely us. You know, it's kind of, kind of walking circles here. So God has revealed us three. It has huge implications, I hope you see, for us. It uh, means that we can be individuals in the context of our community. But God has also revealed us one. God's also revealed us one. The Trinity expresses particularity, but also unity. So how can we, you know, can we really believe in the Trinity yet uh, declare with Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's from Deuteronomy 6.4. We declare that and also believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, so on one end of the spectrum, there's mortalism, which, you know, kind of, it's the heresy that eradicates God's threeness. On the other end of the spectrum, there's tritheism, <laughs> belief in three gods, which is a common complaint against Christians from those who are in other monotheistic religions. See, you guys really believe in three gods. Again, heretics show us, uh, uh, point us uh, to think more clearly about what it is we actually believe. Well, I'm going to read one church formulation from centuries ago that sort of gets at this um, seeming paradox of God being one and three. How are the three one? Well, uh, here's, here's the formulation from centuries ago. It goes like this. The three persons are one God, not three gods. Because of this unity, the Father is entirely in the Son, entirely in the Holy Spirit. The Son is entirely in the Father, entirely in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is entirely in the Father, entirely in the Son. That clears everything up for you guys, right? It's mystery. But if we look at Scripture, it points to this. John 10.30, I, Jesus is speaking, I and the Father are one. Believe me, he says in 14.11, John 14.11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's this mutual indwelling. If we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, look at how, how God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all are kind of weaving in and out of each other. It's Romans 8, 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, see how it changed right there? He does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Do you see how the, you know, the Lord, uh, 
you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all kind of working together in different ways. Um, so it's hard to imagine this mutual indwelling, but I'm going to try my, um, my limited expertise as a piano player to illustrate this idea of God being three yet one. Uh, I had a teacher show me this once. So a piano chord, a major chord, is made up of a triad of three notes, distinct notes. So I'm going to play a D for you. I can't, wow, where is it? I'm not a piano player. Is that it? Is that D? Okay. So we have D, what's that? F sharp, A. Three different notes, right? Hear those distinct notes? But listen to them together. Distinctness coming together in unity. The three notes don't diminish the oneness of the chord. They, in fact, add to its beauty and its fullness. It's the closest I'll ever get to being a concert pianist, so. I think that gets at it, though, right? Unity even amid uh, distinct, distinctiveness and, and uniqueness. Uh, one uh, way the church has described this unity, this sort of mutual indwelling, I use a fancy word, peri- perichoresis. Stephen Siemens uh, defines this idea of mutual indwelling this way, perichoresis. So it's an idea that uh, conveys uh, a number of things. Reciprocity, interchange, giving to and receiving from one another, being drawn to one another and contained in the other, interpenetrating one another by drawing life from and pouring life into one another as a fellowship of love. Yet while perichoresis involves permeation, there's no blurring or differences, uh, blurring of differences or merging with one another. One way the church has talked about uh, perichoresis or mutual indwelling has been the analogy of a dance. That God is himself a sort of dynamic dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The way I like to think about it, and again, my mind's really captivated by the World Cup now, is seeing how a soccer team has this beautiful interchange where they seem like they're one when they're really on it. It's like this beautiful sort of interchange and um, kind of exchange, reciprocity. Um, So in himself, God shares a dynamic dance of giving and receiving. His essence demonstrates self-giving love from the Father to the Son and Son to the Father, Son to the Spirit. Just, just, amazing combinations of of self-giving love within the Godhead itself. And not only is there love between Father and Son and Spirit and Father, Son and Spirit, there's also shared love. So not only does the Father love the Spirit and and the Son love the Spirit, but the, the Father and the Son together love the Spirit. That's a whole different thing, shared love too, right? So I, Jill and I, we both love our kids, and I uniquely love Evelyn and John, and so does Jill uniquely love Evelyn and John. But we also share our love, too. That's something different, right? There's something in the joy of sharing love for another. God shares love within himself. You can see this in Luke 10, chapter 21, or uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have given these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. So a little glimpse into the Godhead of sort of shared joy 
that they have. And as you might guess, this shared love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not something they hoard, but they spill out towards us. It spills out toward us. It reaches out to us. God is not a a gated community or a closed circle, but God leans forward toward us and invites us into his very life. Uh, Again, thinking about that dinner table analogy with with my family. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like that, but there's an open seat at the table. Right? I think it's really fitting that uh, a dominant theme in Jesus' ministry is that of table fellowship. Jesus inviting us into God's life through his, his ministry, his work. So the Father has sent Jesus Christ for us to offer us eternal life, life in him. And Jesus has taken on flesh in his life, death, and resurrection. God offers to us participation in his life through the Spirit. We're taken into the life of God. Okay, this is not the same as being a fourth person of the Trinity. Get get that clear. But through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are surrounded by, we're enveloped by the love of God, love that he has in his own life. God is love. He invites us into that life of love that's always been, always will be. It's an amazingly close communion with God. Paul says, you together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not individualistic. You together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. The place where heaven and earth meets, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this has huge implications for our life in the church, for those brought into communion uh, with God by faith in Christ. It's not just a me and Trinity sort of thing. Um, so it creates, a, it creates a totally new community, one mediated by the Holy Spirit. It's not direct communion. I don't have direct communion with anybody, but it's communion that's mediated by the Holy Spirit. That's what creates the community. You look at the language in the New Testament, and we've talked about this in past weeks. It's, it's amazingly high language, if you will. It's the language of family. It's the language of household. Paul uses the analogy of the body of Christ, of membership. Not membership at like the YMCA, but membership like mem- members of our body, like hands and feet. We belong to each other through the Spirit that communicates the life of God to us. So we're sort of invited to this Trinitarian dance party, if you will. This party of, of giving and receiving. Practically, it means meeting with people you would never meet with before because of Christ. I look at all of you, and um, I know some of you pretty well, and I, you know, we wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for Christ. My best friend in college, a guy totally different from me, just a guy that I'd probably avoid if, you know, given, the, given my natural inclination. Um, but we, we shared a deep faith in Christ. And the friendship, the relationship fostered, not just through our mutual uh, you know, interest in Jesus, but because of the reality of sharing Christ together, just provided the foundation for an amazing friendship and, and relationship. Um, so uh, God giving us uh, participation in his life creates a whole new life that we share together. So again, it, uh, the triune God affects our self-understanding as individuals, affects our life together 
as we participate in God together, but it also affects the way in which we reach out with the God who is on mission. We catch the rhythm of God's self-giving love, and we invite others to know it too. We never really initiate mission, right? We follow God who's on mission, who sends us that others might know the life that's possible through Jesus. One theologian, Paul Stevens, says this, mission is God's own going forth. He is, I love this, he is sender, Father, he is sent, the Son, and he is sending the Holy Spirit. Our time in God is a God who's on mission. So it's, it's a reflection of our being made in the image of God, uh, the God who is sender, sent, and sending. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. I read it from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given me. And what does he do with it? He says, I'm going to use it to put you in, uh, on, on mission. So mission is not like an optional add-on to our life. It's what God's about in his essence, sharing love and communicating it. That's who God is. He is love that desires to be known. If, we're given, if we've given our life to him in Jesus Christ, that means we follow him and what he's up to. God, God's love is never something to hold on to as a sort of greedy possession, but it's a feast where there's more than enough for everybody. You invite others to enjoy it, to know it, to be freed by it. The Trinity teaches us not to theorize about reaching others, but to put skin in the game, to actually do it, to risk for the sake of love, to be incarnational, to put skin on it like Jesus did. So our job is to be more of an, a, a detective, an a observer of, of what God's doing and then being willing to act in response. It's, it's the mission he's given us. It's his mission. So we have a God who shares himself with us, that we might know who we're meant to be, to know what it means to be together. We follow him as those who've been chosen, those who've been empowered to be his witness in the world. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love. This is about grace. Amazing grace that we sung about. It's mysterious, yet it's revealed. The hands that formed us, it's revealed, right? Made in the image of God. Hands that were pierced for us. The hands that promised to, to never let go of our hands as we walk through this world. I ask you to pray with me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are mysterious. You are love. You are beyond, beyond our comprehension, and that's a really good thing. I pray for those who um, need to know that they're made in your image and that they're loved, not uh, in spite of who they are, but even in who they are. They would know it through the power of your spirit. Um, we never let go of who you made us to be, who, are you, who you are making us to be through your spirit for some other culturally prescribed image. I pray you'd create, a, create us to be a, a community that reflects dynamic love, giving and receiving. Lord, and that we'd be a community through your spirit that catches the rhythm of, of your heart. It's outreaching. It's seeking to save the lost. We follow you. We can only do it in your power. 
We do it for your glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.